but I'll still watch Gordon Ramsay make a mean steak and salivate. Greetings. One must not get one's knickers in a twist. Hello and welcome to the History Emporium and Powers podcast. Today we chat about the Peasants' Revolt. I deliberately did not research anything on the topic, but instead I'm going to quiz the mind of our regular guest, Chris Riley. So I just basically want to jump straight in there with a with a question, Chris, if that's okay. Yeah, go for it, man. So uh, what was the Peasants' Revolt and when did it happen? Uh, so the Peasants' Revolt is a its a pretty big and wide and quite ambiguous um, topic. Uh, it happened in 1381, uh, the summer of 1381. Uh, I think before we, we discuss what the Peasants' Revolt is, it's kind of important to go back a little bit. Um, yeah. uh, people that are listening and, and, and you will obviously remember from our, our, top, our conversations about Edward III and the Black Death, um, you kind of the 1350s and 60s was kind of a, a period of, considerable turmoil and change um, and that has a massive effect on um, the the lower orders in England um, leading up to the Peasants' Revolt. So there are kind of three main causes um, of the Peasants' Revolt. Uh, the first one being the Black Death which obviously ravaged uh, Asia and Europe through the 1330s and 40s and killed up to 60% of the population of England. Um, obviously, we've we've done a whole whole episode on the Black Death. Uh, if you haven't already checked that out, I do recommend it. I was it's just about one. to uh, I was just about to plug that there. Yes, go back, yeah. listen to that one first, and then come to this one. It would actually be good if you haven't to to listen to that just for some for some context because the the Black Death, as much as it was a terrible, uh, you know, destructive, um, you know, thing that happened, it also allowed for the people that le- were left quite an, uh, quite a good opportunity to you know go and find more work they essentially could uh, barter for higher wages and better conditions um which did lead to some upward mobility obviously i'm saying that with a, a big old pinch of salt because upward mobility up until very recently was still very very hard to do uh, in this country especially um, but the, the second cause is the Hundred Years' War, which we are slap banging in the middle of at this point. Um, it's been quite successful up until this point. It's, it's, we've had uh, the Battle of Slois, the Battle of Cressy, the Battle of Poitiers, all big English victories that have seen land taken in France. Um, but that, the problem with that is it becomes very expensive very quickly. Um, so after Edward III um, defeats the French at Cressy, he then moves on to Calais takes Calais, um, and Calais is, as it is today, one of the world's biggest trade ports. Um, it was the same back then, and it was an incredibly important uh, kind of settlement for the, for the English to hold. Um, and the upkeep of that was ex- it just insanely expensive, as I'm sure you can imagine. Absolutely. Um, having a, a garrison, you know, forts and fortifications, all that, you know, paid for all the time. There had to be a kind of a constable of Calais as well. Um, Just a sidetrack on that. Isn't Calais still, Calais to Dover still one of the um, busiest shipping routes in the world? 
I think it is, yeah. Mm. And especially at this time in, in the in the fourteenth century, it will it would have been. The kind of the the cloth trade in the Low Countries and Flanders is is something that kind of essentially props England up for most of the um early modern, late medieval period. So Calais and those ports up there were, you know, really, really important. So so we have the Black Death, so lots of death, but a social socially mobile peasant class, let's say. We have a very, very expensive war that doesn't seem to be ending. Yes, it's not a continuous war, but the 1340s, 50s and 60s were very, very busy. And I um, believe it was 116 years. It was, yes. See, I remembered. <laughs> you do remember, it's good, it's good. Yeah, so with the Black Death and the Hundred Years' War, a very costly war, very dangerous uh, time to be alive, essentially, the it set the scene for the Peasants' Revolt. But the, the straw that broke the camel's back which was the third reason, was kind of a combination of all these reasons together. Obviously, there had always been taxes and there'd always been, you know, things that had to be collected and financial strains on the lower orders. It's not, it's not a completely new thing, but in the, like I said, in the late 1370s, um, John of Gaunt, who is a really important character in this story, who I'll go into a little bit more detail uh, soon, he was kind of head of the government uh, after his brother, the Black Prince, and his father, Edward III, had died in 77 and 76, respectively, um, leaving Richard II on the throne, a you know a boy of 10 years old, um, barely knew his dad, never seen a king really rule, so he had nothing to kind of go on, and we know what you know child rulers tend to be like. Uh, so yeah, John, John of Gaunt's in charge, implements this poll tax, and it was insanely unpopular. Obviously, taxes today and taxes pretty much throughout history have been percent based, whether it's um, a tenth or a fifteenth or whatever, which is filtered down. It, it you know it's all relative, um, yeah. whereas it it should be anyway. But the the difference with the with the poll tax that was introduced in 1381, uh, sort of early 1381, which was the fourth poll tax in four years, um, which is quite a lot. Um, it was four pence per person, regardless of wealth, above the age of 14. Obviously, 4p is 4p in old money, um, which is, it's very difficult to work out how much that is in today's money, because obviously currency is, is, is very fluid. But it, it was a lot of money for someone that was a, you know, a, a small time farmer, a serf living on a a lord's land um so it so was a standard rate kind of, yeah okay. which was um you know seen as very very unfair and john of gaunt was the kind of the boogeyman that people looked at as the cause of this poll tax but the poll tax was to pay for the calais garrison and and you know the ongoing war with france Okay, so that's very. Um, so he was seen as a figurehead of of bringing in that poll tax. Very similar in the eighties when uh, Margaret Thatcher brought in the poll tax. Again, she was seen as the figurehead of that Absolutely. as well. So that was kind of the hate figure, I guess. I mm. uh, see so people people of maybe you know a couple of years older than us um, and our parents' generation surely can remember the poll tax being introduced and how opposed the majority of the population was to it you know take that back you know virtually exactly five years and you have a similar situation Mm. um 
so yeah, that's kind of the scene set for the Peasants' Revolt. Okay. Um, but yeah, so by early, sort of May, early, very, very early June time, the government realised weren't getting this money. You know, they were getting a percent of what they were expecting, but, you know, they, they were expecting X and they were getting very, very short of Y. Okay. Because um, people just, in their eyes, refused to pay. Because, you know, how could you refuse to pay the poll tax? It's it's for the betterment of the kingdom and the king, etc., etc. So it got to the point where the king, Richard II, like I said, he's a he's 14 at this point. So he's still a, still a young lad. Like, mm. he's... He's nowhere near at the point where he is mature enough to make decisions. So Richard II and his and his ministers, including his uncle, John of Gaunt, um, decided to send ministers out to the shires to find this money. They were expecting this money and they, they needed it. The country was on the on the brink of being broke. Um so all these all these ministers were sent out to the to the shires and the villages, etc. And um People weren't too pleased, as I'm sure you can imagine. A lot of them was like, well, we've paid our money. That's what I'm paying. Lump it. You know, I, I feel like I've done my bit. Sling your hook. Especially um, if they're not seeing the um, yeah. the rewards of paying this tax. I mean, the the it's very similar to, to I guess, what happens now. People moan about it all the time. Um you pay X amount of tax and yet you don't really know what it goes on. You get a slight breakdown every year through the through the post, but it doesn't seem to affect your life. So people begrudge paying mm. it. Absolutely. It's yeah, it's definitely not a problem that's gone away and I think it's it's one of the many things that we kind of share with our medieval ancestors as such is nobody likes to pay tax. <laughs> Especially when you don't know where it's going. Uh, and this was a, a prime example. Essentially, it was seen as we're paying for a foreign war that we are tired of fighting. We're still recovering from the greatest pandemic in human history. How can you ask for more? Yeah. Um, but the kind of the catalyst for the actual revolt itself happened in Essex, um, where uh, John Brampton or John Bampton, sorry, um, was sent into Essex to find this money. Um, he was there with his with his royal guard as such as his uh, his men at arms, uh, probably quite threatening, uh, marching into these villages and you know where's my money at? And the population were like, no, we're we're not we're not doing this anymore. Um, and a a group of um, I would say Essex boys, but I guess Essex boys is a different thing. They're people from Essex, um, led by a man called Thomas Baker. Uh, no points for guessing what he did for work. Um, was he a baker he was a chemist no he was a baker Um, (laughs) you had me there he was a baker there's a a couple of other people in this story that have um, occupation surnames as well so Uh, but yeah Thomas Baker and his boys basically went we're not having it John we're not we're not doing this anymore the crowd got rowdy you know torches and pitchforks very very Shrek-esque what are you doing in my swamp they attacked John's guard, John Bampton's guards, killed at least three of them, uh, and essentially the Peasants' Revolt had begun. Um, the the villages of Essex and Kent um, started to mobilise. Um, they would gather arms, whether it was a pitchfork or clubs or, you know, 
this the, the word peasant peasants revolt isn't necessarily a very fair name for it because there was um, the emerging merchant place some lords took place uh, took part sorry um, it wasn't just the peasants but it was majority the lower orders of society so that's really interesting um, that you just assume it's a bunch of sort of rowdy um, uneducated people mm. that are just very annoyed and they don't probably understand the politics of of, of London and all that but actually um, there's nobility in there as well like they're they're sort of uniting in their um, hatred I guess for this tax yeah yeah and the the the, the age-old thing when you get history especially around this period is like evil council very very rarely in history do we or do we do, do the, the contemporary kind of antagonizers say i have an issue with the king i richard ii is the problem no no it's always his advisors it's always the john of gaunt character um and that's definitely who this is aimed at so i guess the Uh, i guess the 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 king um is surrounded by his council and Mm. they're to they're there to advise him so actually if it's a problem it's not a problem with him like you say it's a problem with them um and i i guess that's why kings and queens go through so many different councils because they essentially get sacked don't they if they do the wrong thing or they make the king look bad or um something has not gone quite right yeah um, and we'll see later on in the story that, you know, two of his most important counsellors, um, well, yeah, we'll, we'll get on to that. So um, it started in Essex, so, and then it spread to Kent. Did it spread anywhere else in the country? Yeah, so the actual, the, the events of the 1381 Peasants' Revolt tend to focus around the, um, let's call them the Kent rebels um, and London. But it wasn't an isolated incident. Um, it it spread through the country. There were regional uprisings virtually everywhere. But the main the main bulk of the of the of the revolt was centered around Kent and Essex. Um, and speaking of Kent, the arguably the most famous, probably one of the most famous peasants in English history, uh, Watt Tyler, who you may have already heard of. I have. Um, yeah, was the the de-, de facto kind of leader of this band of gruntled Englishmen and women. That's an excellent uh, name. I do like that name. Was yeah. he a Tyler? I know oh, it's spelled differently. Uh, he was a baker. <laughs> oh, no, he was okay. a Tyler. Um, <laughs> no, virtually everybody... Was everybody he actually a Tyler? Has, uh, as far as we know, we know very, very little about what Tyler... And Thomas Baker, to be fair. To be honest, most of the people in this uh, in this epic are relatively unknown because they're not Richard II, they're not John of Gaunt, they're not Simon Sudsbury, the the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, We have no idea what he looked like. Um, He was a man called Watt Tyler from Kent. And that's that's the only kind of concrete evidence we have, but pretty sure he was a Tyler. Um, So that's a lot of um, people's last names stem from their occupation Mm. from years gone by. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know what yours would have been. Green, mine could have been um, either working by the village green or um, working on the land. That's as far as we've kind of got with that one when I've done research. But Riley, what do you think that would have been? 
I'm not sure because that side of my family are Irish, so it, it, it definitely comes from, from that side of the world. But my kind of maternal uh, surname is Clark. Um, okay. And Clark is usually associated with uh, administration or the church. Um, so uh, if you worked as, say, a, a cleric for the Archbishop of Canterbury, you would be John the Clark. And you would be then become John de Clark, John Clark, and then you'd have kids and grandkids, and that's how the surname comes about. And then you get the variation of spellings as well. Yeah, Clark I heard. Clark without the e. yeah, I'm 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 jumping topic again, but this is what I do, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I um, heard a story, um, and it's not about names; it's just about the progression of words. So, um, I mean, there's several stories about how how the abbreviation OK came around. But the one that I've heard, mm. which I found really interesting, is when I was on um, a tall ship in Glasgow. And um, it apparently stemmed from when people were doing the um, the masts and the sails and stuff. And then they'd write um, all correct on the, on the, the shipping logbook. But a lot of people couldn't read or write or spell. So all correct then shortened to OK because they thought all was spelt with an O and correct was spelt with a K. So then the abbreviation of OK came around. So it's all correct, it's OK. So I don't know how I true thought, that is, but I thought it was quite interesting. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd never, I'd not heard that one, but I, I do find it interesting how we get words from, you know, from situations in history. But that, that does make sense. Mm, absolutely. Um, that absolutely makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, so we've got yeah. um, we've got um, where it took place or where it started to take place, and we know that it sort of spread around the country. So, who were they fighting against specifically? So, who were they angry at? Who were they aiming this towards? Cool. So there are kind of four four main characters. We'll call them on the on the side of the king. We have the king. So Richard the second, um, the boy king. We have his um, uncle and advisor, John of Gaunt. We have the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is uh, Simon Sudsbury. And then we have his Chancellor, uh, Sir Robert Hales. They are all considered responsible as each other for this uh, unfair tax. Um, but John of Gaunt has been seen as this character for quite a while. Um he wasn't the most popular man during his father's reign. So at the very, very end of Edward III's reign, John of Gaunt was very important in in in, um, in government because he was the kind of the leading son. He was the fourth son of Edward III, but he was, after the death of his brother Edward, he, he kind of took the reins of government. Um, and history's been quite unkind to John of Gaunt, but maybe quite fairly. Um, but yeah, him, Sudsbury and Hales are the three kind of figureheads of this um, this poll tax movement. Okay, so how did it manifest itself? So you've got people marching from London demanding, I'm guessing, pay our taxes. Um, was there a lot of violence? Was there, like, how did it manifest itself? Yeah, so obviously we've mentioned Watt Tyler before and Watt Tyler becomes the... Uh, like I said, the de facto leader of the of the rebels in general, um, and he, along with his kind of merry band of 
angry peasants and merchants march on um, Rochester Castle, um, where uh, apparently an innocent man is being held on claims of like violating his serfdom. So I, you know, he he went to work for somebody else without his lord's permission, and um, they essentially stormed the castle. The jailers let them in. They freed all the prisoners. And they were like, right, where should we go? Well, where's the best place to go? And you, you know, you want to get something done, you go to London. So they all through the South um, and the Southeast, they marched on London. Uh, don't know the numbers of, of how many went, but let's say 30,000 people marched on London, which is an insane number now. But think then when the population of London was about 40,000, you're almost doubling the population of a, of a city. That would have been really um, intimidating, I guess, for the yeah. the people of London and the the king and his advisors potentially. Mm. Um, yeah, all of a but sudden they, uh, they're not being pushed in. around. No, not at all. And and I think the king and his advisors had no idea how to deal with this. As mm. you can imagine, it's it's a pretty pretty traumatic thing to see as a fourteen year old boy. But um, on their way to London, they they also freed a a radical priest called John Ball. Uh, who is the other of his job was not to be a ball he was just called John Ball um, he <laughs> was he a football he was this is no this is was, way was, way before football was invented <laughs> he, he was a yeah, yeah radical priest who was a little bit before his time he he preached against the um the indulgence of the church and he churched for a very simplistic you know back to basics church and he he was the kind of religious leader of the Peasants' Revolt. Um, but yeah, by kind of um, early June, they had kind of burnt through Kent, um, through Canterbury and people, places like that, and uh, arrived on Blackheath, uh, just outside of London, which I'm sure you you know a little bit more I do know. about than me. Yeah, I do know. Um, now swallowed up by London. Um, it has, which which pretty much... Most of that region has been swallowed up by London, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, London. I get. I feel like I talk about London a lot. That's um, my fault. Brought it up. I'm blaming you, but I don't want everyone to get this um, impression that I'm. I sort of don't know anywhere but London or the North, <laughs> etc. Um, yeah, but London is full of, of of little districts that were sort of villages and towns in themselves um and then the city of london just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and sort of swallowed these sort of smaller towns up so yeah um blackheath is one of them as well so yeah so yeah so you have this mass of bodies and people and you know a pretty a pretty menacing scene was that you know all these thousands and thousands of of armed you know, for lack of a better word, peasants. Um, and it's where uh, John Ball delivers a pretty famous sermon um, that essentially is their kind of manifesto. Uh, I, can, I, can, I can tell you the sermon if you'd like. It's only a short one. No, please do. Yeah, do. Cool. So it's in New English, so there's no Old English omitted to here. So it's uh, good people. Things cannot go right in England and never will until goods are held in common and there are no more villains and gentlefolk. Um, so villains, gentlefolks, kind of the, the emerging middle class uh, as such. Um, but we, are, we all are one and the same. In what, uh, in what way are those whom we call lords greater masters than ourselves? How have they deserved it? Why do they hold us in bondage? Hmm? 
If we all spring from a single father and mother, Adam and Eve, how can they claim or prove that they are lords more than us, except by making us produce produce and grow wealth, which they spend? Which, through my mumbling through uh, literature, basically, if Adam and Eve were just regular folk, which if you, you know, read the Bible, they, they were, they were just two, two people chilling. Why, why do we now have this situation of aristocracy and this, 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 the third estate, uh, which is often called the, the land, the landless peasant. Um, why does that exist when it doesn't exist in the, in the most perfect, perfect of situations, i.e. The, the Garden of Eden? So I really enjoy this man. I think he's great. And actually that speech could have been performed in the 20th century as well. Um, yeah, yeah, it's very, it's very apt up until a very recent time, and it's, mm-hmm. it's. I don't want to fall into the trap of saying that this is kind of very, very, very primitive socialism, but there is this idea of collectivization that that is definitely mentioned or definitely theorized in the 14th century. So I'm going to go down the route that actually, to me from not knowing a lot about the subject. That sounds like very early socialism. Um, mm, why, yeah, no, why, are, why are some people held in a higher regard than others? Um, mm. And it's no secret that's where I, I stand on, on things. Mm. So this, that's really interesting, that, that man. I, I would definitely like to do some more research on him. Mm. Absolutely. You know, he's, um, he's an interesting character and he's... He, I always see him as like the Lenin or the Trotsky even of this situation. You know, the man stood on the soapbox outside shouting and, you know, all, all these punnied words saying, you know, this, that and the other. We should do this. We should do that. And, and people really, really took to it, as you can imagine. Um, yeah. But yeah, by kind of the 13th of June is the where all of it kind of really peaks a... They march from Blackheath over into London itself, over the only bridge over the Thames at this point, which was London Bridge. Um, obviously, at this time, it was filled with houses and shops. I was just was about to a... say, um, was it the beautiful bridge that we all see the images of with the houses and the, yes. the very chaotic-looking bridge? If no one's seen it, please like look it up on the internet. It is incredible. Um it's got houses sort of jutting out everywhere. Um it's I it's incredible. Just look it up. It is. <laughs> it really is. It's a really cool little medieval microcosm. I think it kind of sums up uh, especially medieval England really well. Like all these houses and shops and all this filth uh all, you know, jammed in together and yeah, it's really cool. Um, but yeah, they marched over London Bridge, uh, and then this is where all of the the destruction started. Um, so you know, there's thousands of these disgruntled peasants, and you know, and the the lower classes of of Kent and Essex and places like that running riot in London, um, and a lot of the lower orders in London and a lot of the kind of junior merchant class join in. Um, but their main target is the property of John of Gaunt. Simon Sudsbury um, and uh, Robert Hales. Uh, they are wealthy landowners, all in the, all in their own right, um, and they target their property. 
So the Savoy, not the Savoy Hotel that we now have, um, but the Savoy, which was owned by John of Gaunt, was the kind of main target uh, at the Peasants' Revolt. It was just essentially a treasure trove of, of luxury. There was fine plates, there was jewels, there was clothes, there was everything you could ever want as a medieval lord in this in this one place. And they they sent dismantled it. But one thing they didn't do as on a whole is loot. There was very, very strict rules on looting. The uh, the kind of leadership of the revolt, so uh, Watt Tyler and uh, John Ball and people like that, all agreed that they weren't there to steal. They were there to petition themselves to their king. Because they, at this point, they still... One, you know, they still respected Richard II. They still respected the idea of king, and they didn't want to be seen as this rebel group that were just there to line their own pockets. And yeah, because it's almost situations where contradictory, well, then, isn't it? If you're going in there, yeah. sort of um, uh, protesting against the inequality of wealth, and then you take it all for yourselves. So, on a yeah. moral, on a kind of on a moral stance. Um, I'm. I love these people already. I'm. If I was there, I'd be involved. Yeah, they were, and this is why I struggle with the term peasants' revolt because these politically active members of society, the they knew what they were doing, and they would rather destroy than take. So, if you and were going to rename it, if you were going to rename it, what would you rename it? I'd be really democratic and call it like the Great Revolt or the uh, anti-Gaunt Revolt or the We Don't Like to Pay Tax Scuffle. Yeah, I must have. Uh, ad- yeah, the, the Great Upheaval or something like that. That'd be cool. I like that. I must have, when you when you initially told me there was lots of um, sort of lads, not lads from Essex, but there were there were guys from Essex and Kent, and they were sort of running around London. I did get this image of my head. Of a stag do gone wrong. Um, yeah. That's just a side note completely. It's just one of the images that um, sort of stemmed into my head. So, I mean, I'm from yeah. Hertfordshire, so Essex borders us, and there's kind of this um, uh, rivalry, I guess, as, as we kind of see ourselves as a bit more um, uh, classy is not the right word, but you know, I'm going to do it. We're going to. Sophisticated. We, yeah, we, we, we're a bit more. Um, we feel like we're a bit more upmarket, so I just got this, um, yeah, this image of these lads in fake tan and very tight jeans running around London. But um, <laughs> yeah, I digress I mean, again. I mean, it, it's it's <laughs> it's not necessarily that far away. I mean, it's it's definitely no stag do, but it's it's definitely a lot of you know wide boys out in the town, lads, 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 looking for for blood. Yeah, yeah. But you know, there was. There was people from all walks of life, young, old, men, women, probably kids as well. And they they had a very, very clear goal in mind. They wanted to talk to the king and they wanted to say, look, mate, we respect you as the king, but you've got to respect us as your subjects. We want this to be more even. So that um, leads me but... quite nicely onto the next question. So I was going to ask, like, what, what demands were being made? So what was kind of what was the end goal so the, the the end was the end of serfdom, um, which at this point, obviously to us now, that's like, okay, that's a reasonable request. But in 1381, the end of serfdom is like the end of 
society. Um, the end of the way of everything. So it's important to remember at this time that of the, the three estates, let's call them, we have those that fight, so we have the noble class, those that pray, you know, the church, and then everybody else, the third class. The, the, the third estate made up probably 90, 95% of the population. And the vast majority of those were in serfdom, which is a much nicer but still very much deadlier type of slavery so they were, were the not biggest considered free so they were the biggest percentage of people oh, by, by and yet they were the poorest difference yeah which let's be honest most of the world is we are removed from that generally but we are not totally removed from that on a financial i mean of, like standpoint to me this sounds like very early capitalism yeah, it's it's kind of capitalism without the name and without the s- structured bureaucracy that goes with it. Yeah, and I, I, I'm um, aware that was a sweeping statement of mine, but it's sort of the, no, the no, principles. No, it's, it's, it's are, a valid point. Are there, aren't they? A hundred percent. Even by having the capital. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Like London was the centre of wealth, and they knew that. Therefore, you know, the the one place you would go to, you know, to get to get what you want. Um, but yeah, their, their main goal is to end sir. They also wanted the poll tax, obviously, to go. But they were happy to contribute. That's an important fact. They were happy to contribute, but they wanted it to be fair. Which uh, is not unreasonable at all. Yeah, <laughs> which which I have a lot of respect for, a lot of time for that. But yeah, they, and they also they wanted also the heads. To cut heads off. Mm, they wanted the heads of... of most of the government, <laughs> but the the main ones to remember is John of Gaunt, Simon Sudsbury, and Robert Hales. I mean, I could argue um, some people would want to do that now. Um, yeah, I'm not no, inciting uh, yeah. violence at all, but I just no. <laughs> um, yeah, I can I can imagine there are parallels. Absolutely, absolutely. Do you know what I said that I wouldn't say absolutely on this podcast this time because I listen back and I hear myself say absolutely about twenty million times. And I think I've probably said it about 30 million times this time. So It's, it, it's a great word. I use it all the time as well. Um, I use it absolutely too much. But There we go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, those were the kind of their... <laughs> those were their kind of main uh, goals to get from this. Um, and I got a lot of time for Richard at this time. And I'll get on to why I said it this time in a okay. bit. Because Richard, through this whole thing, um, there's a time where he meets them on the Thames. He's on a little barge with all his advisors. Um, there's a famous manus- illuminated manuscript image of him on a barge meeting all these um, peasants. Uh, basically, he's like, what do you want? And they're like, we want to talk to you, man on man. And he's like, mm, I don't know if that's the best idea. Let me have some time. And he continues to buy himself some time. This is all while London is burning, um, but he he I think he plays his cards pretty well. He hasn't been dealt the best hand, and he just continues to put it off and buy himself time to, to kind of come to the right decision. Um, but this, it's really really important to remember, and I can't believe I haven't mentioned this yet. But John of Gorn isn't in London; he's on the Scottish border, which is so important for this because if he was in London it's likely he wouldn't have survived to see July 
because the other guys didn't. Simon Sudsbury and Robert Hales were both executed after the mob surrounded the Tower of London. Um, and pretty pretty badly done as well. Uh, Simon Sudsbury was... Um, they took eight blows to cut his head off. Ouch. Which... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I can imagine you would at least feel the first two or three, at least, um, which is which is pretty horrible. But yeah, they they both unfortunately didn't survive, um, and there wasn't really much for for Richard to do other than to agree to meet them. Um, John of Gorn has um, been playing in my mind for ages. I was like, I know that name, I know that name, mm. and now I've realised why. There's a pub just down the road <laughs> from me called the oh, John really? O'Gorn. Yeah. So I wonder if there's a connection there. I'm going to research there that. absolutely will be. I'm there gonna... absolutely will be. Yeah, I'm definitely um, going to research that. Um, he is the he is the the founding father as such of a of a royal house. Um, he is one half of the Wars of the Roses. He was the Duke of Lancaster. Um, his son, Henry Bolingbroke, was at the tower with Richard II um, okay. at the time of the Peasants' Revolt. I've just done a quick Google and I've I found out why. Um, yeah. So, John of Gaunt, the first Duke of Lancaster, is that right? Is that him? Yep, that's him. Yeah, so he had a manor in um, Sutton, which is the village I was talking about where the pub is. Um, so yeah, Sutton Park, which is down the road from myself, he had a large manor house there. So that's why there's a pub called the John O'Gorn. There we go. Interesting. Small world. Yeah, interesting cool indeed. Yeah. Yeah, he as the Duke of Lancaster, he he founded. I guess you don't really found a house, but founded the house of the you know the house of Lancaster, and his son Henry Bolingbroke eventually usurped the throne from his cousin Richard II and became Henry the Fourth. Mm. Who then, his he gave not birth, but he fathered Henry V, um, who we were talking about just before this episode. Um, who then was the father of Henry VI. Um, so you can see how important John of Gaunt is to the overall picture of kind of 15th century and late 14th century England. He's yeah. he's one half of the coin that ends up with Henry VII on the throne. So I find this really interesting. So we talk about. Um people and places and 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 things and in this country or the uk as a whole we're so sort of blessed to have all these properties or lands like really close to us so after we did the um lady jane gray episode um i mean we were chris and i were chatting on instagram but i actually found out that um Catherine of Aragon lived in a um, manor house literally just down the road from me. Um, and it's it's actually really close, all of this history, to, to to where I am. And there's obviously a lot of history all across the UK. But it's, it's interesting mm. to actually put places and um, subjects together. Yeah, no, I think, not to go on too much of a tangent, but I think for me, that's probably the reason why I love it so much. Because it's over there, you know. It's, mm. it's you can go and see go and, it. Yeah, I can go and have a look. Uh, you know, I can. We can. You can go to Westminster Abbey and see the famous portrait of Richard II. The pretty much, if you Google Richard II, if anybody Google's him now, the 
the picture of him sat there with his little, you know, his long ginger hair. That's the portrait you can you can go and see that in Westminster mm. Abbey, right next to the th- the the uh, tomb of Edward the Confessor. And it's, it's not rem- it's, it doesn't feel removed, does it? It's very much there. Yeah. Um, um, I'm gonna and, tangent. And these people felt that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm gonna tangent again, but we live in very historical. For for different reasons, you're in the industrial north, but obviously there was stuff there before the Victorians turned up. It wasn't just like the Victorians arrived and da da. Here's all your yeah. um, here's all your sort of history. Go. There was obviously a lot of history prior to that, but yeah, just walking down the road, there's uh, like a medieval church, and then there's a Victorian house. There's a Tudor. Um, uh, wooden building do you know what i mean it's all there like i can see mm. it i can touch it i can go into it um but anyway that's why i love history so we'll get back to topic no. <laughs> um yeah so we'll we'll get back to topic so they've they've made their demands and uh richard has sort of bought his time i guess luckily john O'Gaunt mm. was up in scotland um so he didn't have his head chopped off um, yeah, I think that would have definitely changed this story dramatically. It would have probably been a lot worse if John O'Gorn was in the in the in the south at least. Okay, they would have hunted him down and they would have they would have killed him. So, after all of this happened, like, was it a success? Would we class it as a success? What happened? Um, did they get what they want? Did they not get what they want? Was there a compromise? Um, so that kind of brings on to a, a kind of the end of the Peasants' Revolt in a really really cool way because. Like I said, Richard had agreed eventually to meet them. Uh, and he met them at Mile End, um, which is Smithfield. Yeah. Um, so where the meat markets are today, am I right? Smithfield. Like this, yes, this yeah. Big, yeah. big kind of butcher place. Oh, no, I'm from the north. Um, yeah, so he, he agrees to meet these rebels um, at Mile End. And this is on sort of the 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 14th of of june and he basically says look i agree go home we're all good don't worry about it all of you go home i will agree to end serfdom i'll give you fair wages i'm going to write all this up for you he had all his scribes furiously writing all these demands up basically i the king say yes you're all good and most of the rebels just went home um and then on the 15th of June, there was still the kind of radical nucleus left and they were at Smithfield. Um, so there was only a few hundred left at this point. But they still outnumbered the, the kind of the household guard that Richard had with him. But again, Richard decided, I'm going to ride out and I'm going to meet with Watt Tyler, um, which he did. Um, and he was met with this still very angry kind of bristle. Like I said, it was still the radical nucleus of the rebellion was still left in London and they still wanted more. So we agreed to meet Watt Tyler and it's a little bit wishy-washy at what happened at this point. We don't know exactly. It's 500 years ago, but essentially Watt Tyler strolls up full of himself, demands a drink, gives, they give him some water, he spits it out and he's like, now I want a beer. They get him the beer he drinks the beer. He hugs the king, calls him brother. It's very, he's very familiar. 
And the whole time he's there, he's he's playing with this knife in his hand, like throwing it from hand to hand, very very Captain Jack Sparrow esque, if you if you will, like. And the the king's basically like, "What do you want? You know, I'll we'll see to it that you know you've you're treated fairly. No one will be executed or imprisoned for this. I I agree. I'm your king. Let's come to a deal. And at some point, kind of a scuffle breaks out, and William Wardsworth, who was the uh, mayor of London at the time, a kind of merchant lord as such, he rides forward, who he rides at the king, and he hits Wat Tyler in the neck with his sword, and he manages to do some pretty serious damage to him. Wat Tyler then obviously pegs it and collapses and is then carried off. Um, and at this point, the rebels all start to get all aggy again. You know, bowstrings are held tight and, you know, pitchforks again, like, oh, what's going to happen? You know, everybody's really aggy at this point. The King's Guard are like, is it going to kick off? Are we going to start fighting now? And Richard II, in the most un-Richard II thing to do, just rides straight at the, the rebels and says, I, King, fight for no one but me. Um, for lack of a better phrase, you know, I am your only king and I am with you. You are my subjects. And they kind of just go, all right, and go home. Um, but that is not the end of the Peasants' Revolt. I was going to say, that's, that's not what I wanted to happen. I didn't want that to happen. <laughs> I'm sitting there and I'm no. like, come on, Wat Tyler, come on. <laughs> um, no, unfortunately, Wat Tyler is dragged out of the uh, the church that he's being held in and whether he was dead at this point or not, they just take his head off anyway, Pike, as they do. Um, and then Richard becomes Richard II that we probably know him as. Uh, he becomes the tyrant boy king that the then, you know, has what Tyler executed. They hunt down John Ball, unfortunately, and he has not spared any part of the standard traitor's death. He is hung, drawn and quartered as his taker. Uh, the guy that kicked off the whole thing essentially uh, by standing up to John Bampton. So, do you there think are... this is a um, a way of the king of sort of asserting his authority? Like, okay, yes, we've we've had our chat. Now settle down. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, um, it's I am king. I don't usually like to make parallels to Game of Thrones, but this is a very very Game of Thrones moment for me. Mm-hmm. It strikes me very much of. Um, Joffrey in general. Do you know, um, I was just thinking the same. How funny is that? He, he's not on that level yet. He does get to that point in his later life, hence why he's usurped by his cousin. He's a terrible king. He's an awful, awful man. Um, but I don't really blame him because this is such an important thing that happened in his formative years, as we were talking about last episode with kind of childhood trauma and things like that. His dad died when he was, you know, like eight uh, his granddad then died as an old, sick, kind of feeble king. And he basically turned on all of his um, promises and he said, serfdom will never end. These people will be under more scrutiny and, and worse conditions while I'm king. He He fully turns and he executes. Basically, he says, I'm not going to do anything, but if you lot think that people need to be executed go for it. And he sends his ministers out again and he's like, look, I'm not telling you what to do, but 
if a thousand people turn up dead, I ain't going to be mad. So, so I mean, I now feel a little bit sorry for Richard. <laughs> I am. Um, so obviously he was a king from, from a young age. And if you imagine you've got people telling you what to do, like constantly. So there's always this sort of people, people advising you and pressure and stuff. It it seems to me like he's hit breaking point. Like he's had people sort of um, pushing from either side, like constantly. Yes. And then all of a sudden he's like, F you all. This is how I'm going to do it. Done. He has arguably he has arguably his greatest moment, followed then by one of his worst. Mm. You know the fact that he, as a fourteen year old boy, I know I keep talking about it, but he's a fourteen year old kid. He's a teenager. He marches up to these rebels and says, "I am your king. Fight for me and no else." That's brave. And that takes a, yeah. That takes a lot of balls, and he's not considered a brave king. He's not one of. He's not Richard the Lionheart. He's not Edward the First. He's not Edward the Third. He's the tyrant king Ed Richard II, who crum- who you know, virtually bankrupted a nation. But at that ver- that that moment, I think, is where it snapped for him. Mm. I and think he it... became the the author the autocrat and tyrant that he became. I think it proves that we're all not just one dimensional. There's so many sides to to all of us, and history is normally written in a one dimensional way, isn't it? So this is good. This is bad, but actually, there's mm. there's a bit of both in everyone, um, and situations can bring out the best in people and the worst in people, as well. I'm yes. sure there's many things that we've all done that we've been ashamed of, or other things that we've been really proud of, um, depending on sort of how we slept the night before, or how people are treating us, or our environmental mm. conditions, our economic conditions, um. So yeah, it's actually nice to hear a different side to things. For for me, that's been really interesting. Um, awesome. Yeah, to... it's, it's a he's one of the me like sad stories of of English monarchy. Mm. Very very similar to Henry the Third as well. Another less so a boy king. Um, the princes in the tower as well. Um, there are there are several of them in history that. I kind of just done dirty by not biology, but by just how old they were when they became the most important person in the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. And um, yeah, everyone has their own story to tell and it's obviously, it's quite easy to sort of judge sort of characters by who they are. Um, mm. Sorry, no, by, by what they are rather than who they are. Um, mm. So yeah, I mean, you hear it all the time in in um, sort of the modern royal family, especially William and and Harry, Prince William, and Prince Harry. They um, they very much talk about mental health and how there's so much pressure. And I think they're probably one of the first sort of generation to actually open up about actually it's really hard. People looking at you every twenty seconds and wanting mm. to know everything about you. Um, yeah. If... Yeah, I would say I feel sorry for them, but I don't. But I, I do. Hmm. I do because it's all suffering is relative, and you yeah. know they they do live this weird, not real life where it's like they're literally on stamps and coins and TV and 
It's very bizarre, isn't it? It's yeah. But I'm one of the probably rare people that really likes the institution of the monarchy, and let's not get into that debate. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I like it. I think they're cool. Yeah. Um, but is very, very un- quickly, just to go, go on. So I was going to say, is that unusual for the part of the country that you live in? Most people I know don't like the royal family. Yeah. But I like them from a... I was literally talking to somebody on Instagram about this yesterday. I like them from a from a tourist point of view because it brings in the dollar to this country. And also I like them as a throwback to history. Mm. You know, the 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 English monarchy, let's call it the English monarchy, the British monarchy, whatever you want to call it, has existed in some shape since the ninth century. Yeah. That's older than most countries. It's older than this country, really. Yeah. Um, I I think it's just a great thing to have. So I've got very conflicting views, and it's mm. it's very it's very difficult for me as a that sounds like I'm playing the violin, doesn't it? But it's very difficult for 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 I guess a historian um, or amateur historian. So I I love studying monarchy. I love the, Mm. like you said, I love the institution and I love all of that. But then on the other hand, I think it's really unfair. (laughs) And Mm. then then my socialist views come in. So it's very, it's very hard. So um, you'll probably see in this podcast throughout the the time that I do it, that my stance seems to be very different depending on what topic I'm covering. Um, Mm. But there's, I guess there's room, there's room in my brain for both of them. I would say, yeah, that's kind of and where I, think that's I am. A really, that's a really important thing that I think a lot of the, a lot of people of of let's say our generation kind of forget. You don't have to be one or the other. Hmm. You can just enjoy different points of view and, and I agree. And form a complete hmm. point of view rather so, than like I'm left leaning, so I've got to be left leaning, or yeah. I'm right leaning, I've got to be right leaning. Absolutely, no. <laughs> and you don't have to follow a, a political party to the death, depend like because no. you've always been blue, or you've always been red, or, mm. or green, or yellow. Just because you've always been them doesn't mean you have to agree with everything that they say and they do. Um, you can you can take snippets of everything. Um, yeah, and that is that's humanity, isn't it? We absolutely so. But just to very quickly wrap up on the peasants' uh, revolt, yes, um, it doesn't end in complete failure. Yes, all of the leaders are executed, and Richard becomes this tyrant king. But it it, it plants seed for the end of serfdom, and over the next sort of hundred and fifty years, it all but vanishes from England. Um, it officially ends in I think it's fifteen forty seven. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, not Elizabeth, uh, not fifteen forty seven. Um, I think it's 1587. I'm very, very wrong. 1574. That's why I got mixed up. 1574, Elizabeth I officially gets rid of serfdom. But after the Peasants' Revolt, it completely changes the status quo in England uh, and around Europe to less of a degree. But there are similar revolts in France uh, and uh, around the same time, which have different results. But it, it certainly plants the seed over here that Maybe we need to be a little bit fairer and a little bit more equal. So I'm going to ask you a question now that is not, it's not pre pre checked. Um, so do you think this is all off the cuff? What do you mean? I know, I know. Anyone would think this is scripted. Um, 
Do you think that revolts and revolutions work? They work, but are they always right is a different question. Oh, that's very poignant. I like that. That's like an end of an they EastEnders moment. Yes, they work because they pretty much always result in some kind of change. Mm. Is the change always good? I would argue not so. But it depends on what side of history you are on at a specific time. Yeah. If you are, for example, a, um, you know, a Menshevik factory worker in 1917 Russia, yes, they work. But if you're a Menshevik Russian factory worker in 1918, no, they don't work because you've probably just been killed for being the wrong kind of socialist. Mm. So that's I mean? it's... an interesting point. So I used to live with somebody in Glasgow um, who was from uh, Estonia, Tallinn in Estonia, obviously very close to the border of Russia. Mm. So they he grew up under Soviet control. Um, and we were having a conversation about sort of the, the, the pros and cons, I guess, of it. Um, and he came up with, like, quite a fair few pros and cons for both of them which mm. was really interesting because obviously not sort of living under that and and being kind of alive at the same time we sort of see it from f- again that one dimensional view but he kind of gave me the two dimensional view of his opinion to that mm. as well so sort of always having um always having work always having housing um everyone was equal all of that kind of stuff but then he was saying that so sort of fun was very much controlled. Um, mm. You were very much insulated in that sort of Eastern European world. Um, and you didn't, you weren't really allowed to express yourself and stuff. So he was, it, it, yeah, it was just, it was very interesting sort of hearing the two sides. Um, no, definitely. It's, of that um, story. It's a real, not to go the most off topic we've probably ever gone, but no, no, this is super on topic because it's about a revolt or a rebellion. I think it's a, su- a super interesting thing to look into and to discuss and to understand more because whether you are, you know, left leaning, right leaning, a centrist, whatever, I always say that you can't understand another, you can't have an opinion on something unless you understand the other side. And I don't mean you need to fully understand the Communist Manifesto, you know, but to understand what it must have been like, A, you have to have been there, mm-hmm. or B, you really have to study what the positives or the pros or the cons, etc., are of both sides before you can really understand what it, what the under, what the original point of it was. Yeah. Um, but uh, I am going on a massive tangent. No, I'm going to go even further off topic now. So if it. you... Um... So I was looking through, I was reading a uh, a blog the other day, and there was a really interesting picture of um, Berlin uh, in Germany from mm. the air. And you can see where the, the wall used to be in the street lighting. So if you look at it straight the way down from sort of bird's eye view, um, the street lighting on the west of Berlin, or west of the wall, is completely different mm. to the right of the wall because they were made differently. They were put produced yeah. differently so even now there's that remnants of, of history there but yeah I suggest everyone goes and does that it's really I find it interesting um, that you can just tell cool. what side you are on from mm. from the lighting from the street lighting mm. 
Um, and I think back to your original question on, you know, do, do they work? Do they achieve a goal? I think when we're talking about the Peasants' Revolt, to, to link it back, I think we are on the good side of the history of this one. You know, we the end of serfdom is a wonderful thing and it needed to happen way sooner. Um, mm. And all of the things that eventually came out of things like the Peasants' Revolt were all good things. But I think when you look at it, maybe I'm looking at it with my current 21st century head, with a current 21st century world out of my window looking at, where I might be like, hmm, is it always a good thing? Do, do, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I it's, think it's... Um, I think history I is portrayed depending on where you are at the time. Yeah. Like now. History is written by the victors. Mm-hmm. It's, there's ne- a never, never a truer thing has ever been said. Absolutely. I just... Um, so you mentioned Smithfield, I'm sort of going back slightly. So um, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't getting it confused with somewhere else. So Smithfield is the place where the um, sort of fish and meat market is. Um, mm. It's also the place that William Wallace was executed. Um, it was, yeah. And it is now eventually going to be the new home of the Museum of London. That whole meat market. Is going oh, to become really? yeah. It's going to become the Museum of London. Um, it's That's sort sweet. of yeah. No, it's going to look really good when it's finished. Um, the current Museum of London is in the Barbican, which is sort of them big old, uh, not old, the big um, grey concrete um, modernist brutalist architecture. But it's kind of mm. it's kind of outgrown its setting. Um, so it's being moved to to just down the road at Smithfield. So yeah, if anyone's interested, go look at the plans. They're very they're very good. Well, as a vegetarian history fan, that sounds good. That sounds right on my street. Are you vegetarian? <laughs> I am. Yeah. Oh, there you go. You learn something new. Not 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 to the point where it dictates my life, but Every I day. just don't eat meat. <laughs> no, I um. My mum's been vegetarian forever and a day, so just by sort of default, I've kind of become yeah. vegetarian. Um, but I'll still watch Gordon Ramsay make a mean steak and salivate. There you go. And that's a perfect way to end the podcast on Chris's salivating. Thanks again for coming on. Um, no, any time, mate. It's, uh, it's, it's been good. Yeah, no, I've really enjoyed this one, and it seems everyone else is enjoying this very strange collaboration we have going on. Um, very. I hope so. No, well, I'm enjoying it. Um, and Good. I keep getting messages from people saying that they're enjoying it. So long may it continue. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, keep the messages coming in and the feedback because it, it does help both of us out as well. Um, it really does help make sure these podcasts, A, still happen if you want them to, and, and B, make them maybe less tangenty if you don't like the tangents. But we'll probably just keep doing that. Mm, yeah, you can't you can't rein me in. I'm afraid. Yeah, it's just how it is. Um, try being my friend, or try being in a room with me forever and a day. It's very hard. Um, so, Chris, it's that time of the show where I will ask you to plug whatever you like to plug. I can hear you clapping your hands together there. I'm ready. You're ready. I'm ready. So you know go- I love a good plug. Yeah, plug away. So, as always, you can find me on Instagram at chrisreilly_ underscore. Um, also at the historycorner.org website 
um, where I will be starting a series on popular historical figures from legend. Uh, I'm going to try and tell the real history of kind of like uh, Robin Hood, um, King Arthur, Lady Godiva, people like that. Uh, if you do have ideas or people you would like to see me cover, drop me a message on Instagram and I'll, uh, I'll see what I can do. Uh, also, I'm finishing up a series with um, infocushistory.co.uk, which is another fabulous website I've been writing for for a while. Um, I will have a post out soon about the 7th and 8th Crusade, which is um, the Crusades of the French King Louis IX, St. Louis, the reason we have so many St. Louises in the world. Um, so yeah, definitely check those out. Um, but yeah, continue to uh, support this wonderful podcast as well. I've had an absolute blast doing these. Um, long may they continue. And they will continue. Um, our next subject is the Stuarts. So um, we're going to flip reverse again. So Chris is going to ask me questions about the Stuart period. Now, the Stuart period is obviously a long period of time, so it's going to be split into two episodes and there's probably going to be a million tangents in there as well so it might even be free who knows um i never know until i get editing yeah um but yeah so we're gonna do that (laughs) well yeah we're gonna do that and then um we're gonna do the film review so chris put out a post on his instagram page um about films that you would like us to review and talk about historical accuracy and if it actually means anything or if it's just good for entertainment so Mm. what film have we chosen so i got a load of recommendations like i was surprised at how many films people wanted us to watch um the main one that kept coming up um was the king um so in 2019 um essentially it's the a modern retelling of the shakespearean version of henry v at agincourt um that came up a few times uh, it's a film that you said you've not seen, is that right? I've not seen it at all. I've seen it, it's on my watch list, but I've not actually seen it yet. So, yeah, yeah we're going to dive into that one, and then we're going to review it, and hopefully it'll be interesting listening. If it doesn't, we'll scrap the whole idea, but we'll um, yeah. we'll see what happens. If not, we'll keep finding films to critique. Yeah. There was quite a lot of films on the list that I'd not actually heard of, which was quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, there was there was films that I I'd never even thought about watching or even knew. Um, one film that did come up a few times was Braveheart, and I don't think I can do that to myself. Um, I don't think that needs us to say anything about. No, I, I Mel Gibson. I don't really like. I just don't like him. No. Um, and again, I mean, just starting from from the beginning, like get a real Scott to play William Wallace ridiculous yeah and anyway william wallace properly because the, yeah the real william wallace is way better than the mel gibson william wallace yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. but anyway we're not reviewing that so um we're going to end the <laughs> podcast now and um thanks again for coming on and we will catch everyone soon thanks for having me thank you five four three two one go and timothy charlemagne's in it so that's always good I am shit with names. I don't know who that is. So, <laughs> is that the guy from um, Peaky Blinders? Is that him? No. No. He is a half French, half American, like heartthrob. He's got like long dark hair. I definitely quite gaunt looking. I definitely need to watch it then. <laughs> Sorry. He's um, he's 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 a bit of a looker. I'll give him that. Is he? 
What a bastard. Yeah. I know. <laughs> like, oh, these people having it all. Wankers. I know. Stop. Rest.